morning. I was watching them load our uh, wolves into their cages this last week up in British Columbia, and uh, it reminded me of a of a story that my father used to tell years ago about a dog that found himself all alone in his cage in uh, the baggage room of an airport, <clears throat> and there was no tag on the cage. And the superintendent of the uh, baggage uh, room asked the baggage handler in there where the dog was going. Uh, the man said, I don't know, you don't know, he don't know, he done add up his tag. <laughs> and uh, when I remembered that story, I, I uh, hoped that that is not at all true of us, that we know where we're going. Over the past few months, your elders have been gathering once a week uh, on Thursday morning and then subsequently with, uh, with the staff to talk about the direction that we feel God is leading this church in years to come. And we've put together a mission statement, the one that Jackson uh, mentioned earlier. Hope you will get one of those and you will spend some time this week looking at it. And uh, this morning, I want to talk about the first of our objectives under that mission statement, which has to do with prayer. Now, if you have the statement in your hand, the first objective reads like this. First, uh, in each case, we begin with a definition of the objective, and then we spell out what that means in terms of this of the ministry of this church. Prayer is the highest expression of our dependence on and relationship to God. Prayer is the highest expression of our dependence upon and our relationship to God. And that may be a, a new definition for you, and I hope uh, as a result of our study this morning, you'll come to understand what we're saying. Prayer is many things. It is worship and devotion, intercession for others, and making requests for ourselves. It is the means by which we discern truth in the scriptures and relate truth to life. It is the way we determine God's will. Prayer is our primary ministry. By it, everything else is done. It is our goal to be a praying people, to pray without ceasing, and to live our lives and carry out our ministries through prayer. Now I want to spend some time this morning talking in general about prayer. We will hopefully get a chance to look at the passage in Ezra that you studied in the growth groups. But uh, I have some some introductory remarks, some general comments to make about the nature of prayer, which, which I think uh, can be helpful to you. Uh, for many people, prayer is a great mystery. As Winnie the Pooh would say, it's a puzzlement. Uh, there are things about prayer that are difficult to understand. We're told to ask for things. Jesus said uh, that we're to pray, give us this day our, our daily bread. And does that mean that it's possible for us to modify God's behavior through some simple suggestion of ours? God is absolute wisdom. Does he need us to tell us what's right? He is absolutely good. Does he need us to tell us when he should act and when he should uh, act in, in beneficial Ways? Does he need us to counsel him and, and tell us what he should, uh, he should do? Is prayer some infallible gimmick for getting what we want? 
Elizabeth Barrett Browning said, every wish is like a prayer to God. Does that mean that uh, he responds to all of our whims? If we pray that uh, it not rain on our picnic tomorrow, does that mean God is going to change the weather patterns over an entire continent for our sake? And what about the farmer down the lane who is praying for prayer, praying for rain? These are the, the kind of questions, I think, that, that rise in our mind when we think about the possibility of asking God for things. To what extent can we determine the future? To what extent do we bend God's ear and bend His will to ours? Is that what prayer is? These are some of the, the puzzles, I think, uh, with reference to, uh, to prayer. Now, the place for me in, 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 with reference to each of these questions is simply to say that prayer is enjoined upon us. We're told to pray. We're asked to pray. We're commanded to pray. Uh, Jesus said, pray and don't stop praying. And then he told that odd story of the, of the widow, the unfortunate widow who kept hassling the unjust judge until he finally gave in and gave her what she wanted. Now, uh, the point, of course, is not that God is like that unjust judge. He's not at all like that judge. He's arguing from the lesser to the greater. He's saying that if even an unjust judge will finally capitulate to insistent, prevailing, patient uh, requests, then how much more a heavenly father will respond to his children when they ask? That's why the Lord says, pray and keep on praying. Don't stop praying. Paul says, pray without ceasing. That's in 1 Thessalonians 5.17. He says, continue steadfast in prayer. That's in Romans 12. He says, pray in the Spirit on all occasions, with all kinds of prayers and requests. He tells us to devote ourselves to prayer. Paul says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Repeatedly throughout Scripture, we're told to pray. So even if we don't understand the nature of prayer, it's really a matter of obedience to our Lord. He says, pray, so we must pray. And it's my experience over the years that obedience is often the way we come to understand something. Understanding is not always the result of having something explained to us. It is sometimes the result of entering into something God asks us to do and discovering in root the reason for that, uh, for that request. Now, on the other hand, no one has to tell us to pray. Prayer is the reflexive, instinctive reaction that we have to any difficult undertaking. When we're pushed beyond our limits when we're frightened out of our wits, when we're moved out of our comfort zone, we involuntarily resort to prayer. George MacDonald said, the natural way is to the Father's knee. Whenever we're hurting, whenever we're under pressure, whenever we're stressed out, we will naturally turn to the Lord. Some of you may remember a few months ago that uh, goofy poem that I quoted to you about the different uh, ways to pray with hands upraised or hands clenched in front, and uh, it ends with Cyrus Brown's statement last year, I fell in Hitchkin's well head first, said Cyrus Brown, with both my heels a-sticking up and my head a-pointing down. And the prayer I prayed right then and there, the best prayer I ever said, the prayingest prayer I ever prayed, standing on my head, 
And uh, that's the point of that poem is well taken. That in those moments of desperation, we pray. But when our Lord commands us to pray, he has more in mind than praying in the emergencies and in the exigencies of life. What he's talking about is developing a constant uh, prayer style, lifestyle of prayer. Praying about all things. Not only those things that stress us and things that are difficult for us, but praying our way through life. That's what we mean by that statement, prayer is the means by which everything else is done. Now, um, throughout Scripture, there are numerous examples of people that were, that were prayerful. Uh, I've mentioned before Nehemiah and uh, that, that dangerous situation where he walked into the court of, of, the, of King Artaxerxes, not knowing if, if his life was safe he was going to make a difficult request of the king. And he said to himself, he puts this in his memoirs, otherwise we wouldn't know it. I prayed to the God of heaven and I said to the king, Lord, here goes nothing. And then he spoke to the king. There's Elijah's prayer, not knowing what to do with the state of his nation, the nation in rapid decline, and he began to pray, what do you want me to do? And God, through that prayer, gave him wisdom about the the course that he should take. David's psalms are, are prayers, essentially. I don't know if you've ever noticed it before, but at the end of Psalm 72, the very last verse of that of that chapter, verse 20, I believe it is, is not really a verse at all. It's a tagline to, to all of the psalms that precede it, the first two books of the psalm. And verse 20 says, Thus the prayers of David are ended. The, the, prayer, the psalms are prayers. That, that was David's prayer journal. As he sat in the cave of Adullam, he penciled out, pinned out, whatever David did in those days, his, his, his prayers, and he prayed them. It's a good exercise for us, by the way, if you find your prayer life Arid, you want some help? Pray through the through the Psalms. Read them to yourself. You'll notice that that they may begin with references to the Lord or about the Lord, but then they turn into prayer at some point. David was a was a great man of of prayer. But of all of the examples in the Scripture, Jesus' example I think is the most startling. He insisted that he was always dependent upon the Father. Jesus never acted out of his deity. He always acted out of his humanity, dependent upon deity. He says in the Gospel of John, I can do nothing of myself. Everything he did, he did out of a sense of dependence upon the Father. And nowhere is that more clear than in his prayer life. He prayed about everything. There, there were times when he went into the mountains and there were protracted periods of time. That was his custom when he, when he prayed over the issues of his ministry and his personal life and other concerns that, uh, that he had. But there were also those moments where he, where he was faced with some circumstance and he immediately resorted to prayer. When he fed the 5,000, he broke the bread and he thanked the Father that there was enough to go around before the bread had even been broken and distributed. There was that uh, that moment in Gethsemane where he prayed that the cup may pass from him. 
there was that moment when the Greeks came to him and asked to see Jesus, to see him, and and he prayed that the Father would would be uh, would be glorified. His whole life, from beginning to end, was a life of a life of prayer. Um, F. B. Meyer says, "Oh, the mystery of humility that he who planned all things should live a life of such absolute dependence." And the point I'm trying to make is that prayer is more than a formal time of prayer. It is a lifestyle. It is a pattern of praying about everything. It is the highest expression of our dependence upon God. Our Lord needed it. Biblical men and women needed it. Those people that are found in the Scripture. And we need it. Now, uh, prayer takes many forms, as we say in this uh in, in, the, in our statement about prayer, prayer is petition. It is supplication. It is asking for things, for ourselves. Anything large enough for a wish to light on is large enough to hang a prayer on, George MacDonald says. You can pray about an upcoming contract. You can pray about a lost contact lens. You can pray about your health. You can pray about your children. You can pray about every situation in life. Paul makes it very clear when he says, don't be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known unto God. Now by its very nature, supplication is a request. We're coming to a friend. Friend, don't make demands of one another. We can only request and ask. We ask in our way and our time. God answers in His way and, and His time. There may be delays. There may be denials. And sometimes the denials are very stern. But nevertheless, we're, we're told to ask about everything. John Newman wrote, Thou art coming to a king. Large petitions with thee bring. For his grace and power such that none can ever ask too much. Ask about everything, every concern upon your heart, every heartache, every heartbreak, everything that bothers you, everything that nettles you about life. Pray when you see uh, uh, someone, something coming up that uh, that you're fearful about. Uh, Ask God for wisdom. Ask about everything. The scriptures uh, tell us. I have told you before the story of the. Man who got up in a prayer meeting and he began to pray one of these uh, the- long theological prayers. So, oh, thou great God who sitteth upon the circle of the earth, before whom the inhabitants are like grasshoppers, and an elderly gentleman sitting right behind him tugged on his coat and said, "Just ask him. Just call him Father and ask him for something." That's what prayer is. Just call him Father, ask him for something. Prayer is also intercession for others. Someone has said in God's kingdom, a man's salvation rarely comes without the prayers of another who who labors unseen. Carolyn and I have prayed for years for someone in our family who just recently, this past week, we heard has come to Christ. We, we, we are called upon to intercede for others. It's one of the ways by which God aligns us with Himself and what He is, what He is intending to do. It's 
One way we can associate with him in his work of salvation in the world. Paul says, pray for me that the gospel may run and have free course. We should pray for one another along those lines. Pray for our missionaries. Pray for those among us who are involved in ministry. Pray for non-Christian spouses. Pray for non-Christian friends, for non-Christian children. But you say, well, there are no guarantees. They may not come to Christ. That's true. That's true. Nevertheless, Paul tells us uh, to pray. All of Scripture tells us to pray. Prayer is also confession. Brian led us in a prayer of confession and contrition a moment ago. You say, well, but why do we need to pray? Uh, why do we need to confess our sins? We're already cleansed from all of our sin. That's true. God's grace has cleansed us and purified us. And yet there is a sense of cleansing, an awareness of cleansing, that comes as a result of confessing our sins. Prayer is also worship and, and devotion. It's, it's uh, adoration. It's one of the ways that we express our love for God. And here, I believe, we come closest to the heart of prayer and what prayer really is. C.S. Lewis says this is the sanctuary uh, Petition and intercession are the threshold. Worship, adoration, devotion is the holy of holies. It's the sanctuary. Here we're closest to the, to the heart of, heart of God. And, uh, as I have said, it's here in perhaps, as perhaps a no other form of prayer that we express our utter dependence upon God and we're able to experience something of our relationship with Him. John Calvin said, Believers, do not pray with the view of telling God about things unknown to Him, or of exciting Him to do His duty, or of urging Him as though He were reluctant. On the contrary, they pray in order that they may, may arouse themselves to seek Him, that they may exercise their faith, that they may declare that from Him alone they hope and expect both for themselves and others all good things. Prayer, you see, is the means by which we stay in constant contact with God. One of the ministers on our staff, uh, Nancy Edwards, has said that prayer is engagement with God. It's the way we stay in contact with Him. It's the way we, we express our love for Him. It's the way we hear what He has to say to us. It's the way He aligns us with what He intends to do in the world. It's the way... We express our utter, absolute dependence upon Him for everything that we have to do or say. It's the way that we abide in Christ. We remain in Him. It's the way we confess that apart from Him, we can do nothing. I'm on a, an on, online service, uh, CompuServe, and uh, uh, when I dial into CompuServe, a little dialog box comes up, and there's a little graphic that shows a plug. Two plugs coming together, and uh, it says, Connecting to CompuServe. Well, somewhere way back east, there's this uh, huge computer that that, uh, that manages uh, all sorts of things. And here I am in my, with my little laptop, and when I open up that connection, I'm connected in to a, another, another resource. And that's what prayer is, that when we begin to pray, we are connected into God. It's, it's the way we engage with Him. 
in a personal way. See? When, when you see prayer like that, then life simply becomes a matter of prevailing prayer. I think one of the most significant statements on prayer found anywhere in the Scripture is David's statement in Psalm 109.4. He was under attack, and uh, he was experiencing a great deal of difficulty. And he says, My enemies inveigh against me, but most of the translations say, I am a man of prayer. But the Hebrew text simply says, I am prayer. I am prayer. In other words, prayer was the essence. It was the genius of his life. It was the atmosphere in which he lived, the climate in which he uh, he worked, uh, the environment of his life. He prayed about everything, and that's what prayer is. When we start to feel guilty about something in the past, and so we, we pray, we connect, we engage. We thank God for his wonderful forgiveness and his grace, and we go on with that that wonderful sense of cleansing. We're we're facing some difficult situation, and so we we ask, Lord, give me the strength that I need to face into this set of circumstances. Give me the wisdom. Give me the words. Engage. We get up in the morning, and uh, as I said before, every morning the Lord passes by, and He says, "Come, follow me." And and we hear His voice, and we follow it. Good morning, Lord. I want to walk with you through the day. For years, I used to wake up, and the first thing I would do when the alarm would go off, well, the first thing is turn off the alarm. And then the second thing I would do is is pray through the 23rd Psalm. I don't know if you've noticed it or not, but the psalm begins with David describing his own experience. The Lord is my shepherd. And midway through the psalm, it turns into a prayer. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you are with me. Significant change in pronoun at that at that point. It's a prayer, see. And I would pray my way through the twenty-third psalm. You get up and and uh, spend some time alone with the Lord. It'd be a time to read through some of the the psalms and begin to pray them. Get in your cars or you're on your way to work. You begin to talk over with the Lord the circumstances that you face through the day, the difficult people with which you have to deal the decisions that have to be made. Just chat with him. Tell him those things. You walk into the office and you begin to pray for the people as you encounter them. Your secretary or your employer, your employees, the people that come in to uh, to use uh, your, your to buy your product. You pray for them. You're standing in a uh, in a uh, checkout stand in a grocery store and and you see uh, uh, a woman's magazine there. You know, where the impression given is that what, what makes life is being thin and being rich and having a successful love life. And, and, and you realize how empty that philosophy of life is. And so you begin to pray for the people around you that have bought into that, uh, death dealing philosophy. And you pray for the checker. Probably, in, well, in some cases, they're single, um, Parents, mothers who are trying to support their families or retirees that can't support themselves on Social Security. So so you pray for them. And what begins to happen through the day is that you begin to think God's thoughts after Him. I cannot explain the process. But God begins to enter into your conversations and into your actions, and you begin to think the way He thinks, and you begin to talk the way He would 
the way he would have you talk, and all of that flows out of that connection, that contact that you've uh, that you've made with God. Uh, during the medieval ages, the monks of that era saw in everything an occasion for prayer: the flight of a sparrow, the the sound of a bell, uh, a falling leaf. They were reminders of prayer. For me, they're people. As I walk through life and I encounter people and, and their needs, I, I want to pray for those people. I want to pray that my response will be proper. You see, that that's what prayer is. Yes, we need those protracted periods of time that are set aside for prayer. But it's out of those times that a whole life of of prayer uh, flows. Uh, prayer is our essence. It is our principal work and the means by which everything else uh, is done. I read uh, a few weeks ago a story about Stonewall Jackson, great Civil War general who was a believer, as you know. And uh, he said, I never seal a letter without putting a word of prayer into the seal. I never receive a dispatch from the post without a brief sending of my thoughts upward. I never meet my troops without a moment's petition on those who go out and those who come in. Everything calls me to prayer, he says. That's what I'm trying to say. Everything is a trigger because everything should remind us of our humanity and our inadequacy and our need for God and all that he's promised to give us. Now, all of that is introductory to uh, this uh, topic of prayer. And I want you now to turn to the book of Ezra, chapter 9. And I want to... Actually, I want to refer to two passages out of the Old Testament. This one and another one from the life of Abraham. I think if I had to do this over again, I would have had you study the story of... Uh, Abraham's intercession for Sodom. I do want to refer to that passage before uh, we're through this morning, but I just want to call your attention to Ezra's prayer in chapter 9. Let me give you a little bit of uh, history. Uh, In the middle of the the 6th century, actually latter part of the 6th century, 586 B.C., Babylonians uh, sacked and burned the city of Jerusalem. About 50 years after that, the Babylonians themselves were destroyed by the Persian Empire and Cyrus became the dominant power in the Middle East. Uh, Cyrus's policy to return uh, uh, captured people to their homeland and to give them the funds, the means to restore their sanctuaries. He was not in any sense a believer. If he was anything, he was Zoroastrian. But as a simple political procedure, he believed in sending uh, expatriated people back into their into their back to their homeland and enable them to build their uh, their sanctuaries, their temples. He did that for the Israelites. The large number of them returned under Zerubbabel. Then Nehemiah, waves of them went back. The Jews today refer to it as the Aliyah, the going up. They're going back to Jerusalem back to the capital city. They began to rebuild the temple. It was a very difficult time, several setbacks. But finally, by 516 uh, B.C., some 70 years after the destruction of the city, they rebuilt the temple. Sorry, sad little structure. They wept when they saw it. It was nothing like Solomon's temple. 
But nevertheless, the temple was, uh, was completed. Uh, in 458 B.C., this man Ezra came back. Now, Ezra is described in the Old Testament as a scribe. Uh, scribes get very bad press in the New Testament because of their opposition to Jesus. But, but originally, the scribes were nothing more than Bible teachers. That's all they were. They translated the scriptures from Hebrew into Aramaic because the people had forgotten how to read, read Hebrew. Aramaic now was the, was the uh, uh, lingua franca. It was the language of the people. And uh, they translated the scriptures in, in, into Aramaic. And they interpreted the scriptures to the people. They're Bible teachers. Ezra is described as a ready scribe. Uh, he was diligent, hardworking, good student of the scriptures. And he went back with the scrolls of the Old Testament to teach the people in Jerusalem because of the deplorable spiritual condition of the people. They were in bad shape. He taught them for about four and a half months. And then he received the report that's given to us in the first two verses of chapter 9. After these things had been done, the leaders came to me and said, the people of Israel, including the priests and the Levites, have not kept themselves separated from the neighboring peoples with their detestable practices like those of the Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Jebusites, Ammonites, Moabites, Egyptians, and Amorites. They have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons and have mingled the holy race with the peoples around them. And the leaders and the officials have led the way in this unfaithfulness. The report came that the leadership of Israel, as well as some of the people intermarried with the pagan uh, people around them. It had been the policy of Assyrians and Babylonians to bring in captured people, to relocate them in other places. And the Amorites, the Hittites, the uh, people, the, the native uh, inhabitants of the land had been resettled in Canaan. And the Israelites were, were marrying into these, uh, into these pagan families. The problem was that they were bringing in idolatry, bringing in their idolatries with them. This is what had caused the nation so much distress before and had caused them to go into exile. And uh, when the report came to Ezra, he was appalled. He was frightened out of his wits. He did not know what to do. Because if this happened again, he could see history repeating itself. Another nation coming, destroying Israel, becoming the rod of God to bring them down. And... Uh, we're told in verse 3, When I heard this, I tore my tunic and cloak, pulled hair from my head and beard, and sat down appalled. That's the Semitic way of expressing grief. They tear their clothing. They pull the hair out of their head. You, you can see by looking that I have prayed much for this church. <laughs> and they pulled out their beards. I haven't gone that far yet. No. He was appalled. The Hebrew word actually means to shudder. He was horrified. And what did he do? Now, this is a Bible teacher. Remember, I'm, I'm a Bible teacher of sorts. And uh, I know what I would do. I'd start teaching the Bible. I'd go back to Deuteronomy 7, and I'd remind people of, of the law of Moses and what Moses had to say about, about uh, idolatry and what it can do to a nation. But that's not what Ezra did. He got down on his knees and he began to pray. Then um, 
Everyone who tre- verse four, everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel gathered around me because of the unfaithfulness of the exiles. In other words, others that held God in awe, who feared God, who loved God, and who loved His word, and who wanted to follow Him. Men and women of prayer began to gather around around Ezra. Verse 5, in the evening sacrifice, I rose from myself a basement with my tunic and cloak torn and fell on my knees with my hands spread out to the Lord my God, and I prayed. So Ezra did. He prayed. Now, I'm not going to read the prayer that follows. You you have studied it uh, extensively in the growth groups, except to say that all the elements of prayer are there. Confession, uh, petition. Intercession, praise, worship, thanksgiving, they're all there. This is a model prayer. Included here, as so many of the prayers in the Bible are, simply because we they teach us to pray. We can learn how to pray by listening to, to others pray. But I want you to notice the result of this prayer. That's why this passage had such an impact on me. Chapter 10, verse 1. While Ezra was praying and confessing, weeping and throwing himself down before the house of God, a large crowd of Israelites, men and women and children, gathered around him. They too wept bitterly. Then Shechaniah, son of Jehiel, incidentally Jehiel, is one of those who had married a, a foreign wife. One of the descendants of Elam said to Ezra, We've been unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women from the peoples around us. But in spite of this, there is still hope for Israel. Now let us make a covenant before our God to send away all these women and their children in accordance with the counsel of the Lord and of those who fear the commands of our God. Let it be done according to the law. Now I'm sure, knowing the compassionate stance that the law takes, that they did not simply put away these these women and their children. They provided for them. They placed them into homes. But they did act faithfully according to the law. What did it? Ezra prayed. The people prayed. The natural thing is to the Father's name. And I would hope that that would be our stance in the years ahead. That we, as God's people, would be men and women of prayer. That when we see what's happening to our culture, we would pray. If we see things happening within our church that distress us, that we would pray. If things are happening in our families... We would pray. I you know, one, one of the one of the uh, striking things about our Lord is that He prayed for the little children that that came to Him. That several references in the Gospels, in fact, we're told that that mothers brought their children to Jesus so He would pray for them. Perhaps that's all we can do for a child, but we can pray for them. And would it that were our immediate response to every situation that arises, whether we're aware of our own deficiencies and inadequacies or not, that we would pray. Because it's prayer that expresses our utter reliance upon God. It's prayer that aligns us with God and what, what He's doing. As we pray, we bring our list. He begins to change our list until we pray what He wants us to pray for. The best prayers are always initiated by God. Paul says that we don't know what to pray for. 
But the Spirit who dwells us prays for us with groanings that cannot be uttered. As we begin to pray, we begin to hear the Spirit of God praying within us, and God begins to align us with His will so that we know what to do. And as we pray, we are connected to God. We begin to sense more of His heart. We come to know God in a way that we could not know Him otherwise. Prayer is the means by which we apprehend, comprehend the mind of God. Prayer is the means by which we understand the Scriptures. Bible study, study is not just a rational process. We have to use our heads. But the process by which we come to see what's really here is a spiritual process. It is by means of the Spirit that we discern the things of the Spirit. Prayer is the means by which truth becomes a reality in us. It's our hedge against hypocrisy. It's the way that truth becomes a part of our life. Prayer functions in every aspect of, of, of our Christian life. Now I want to close with just one final reference. To what's described for us in Genesis 18, that intercession, wonderful intercession of Abraham over, over the city of Sodom. It's utterly wicked, awful place. This kind of in-your-face God immorality that called for judgment. Abram was brokenhearted. He knew the people of Sodom. Uh, many of them were his friends. His nephew was there. His nephew's family lived there. He was concerned about that, that place. So he began to pray. He said, uh, if there are 50 righteous people there, will you, will you spare the city? Because I know the judge of all the world will do what's right. God said, no, I won't destroy this city for 50 righteous people. Abraham said, how about 45? If there are 45 there, will you spare the city? God said, I'll, I'll spare the city for 45. How about 40? Are there, maybe there are 40 there. God said, I'll spare it for 40. 30? Will you spare it for 30? Sure. 20? Yes. 10? Yes. And Abraham stopped praying. And, and I've read commentaries, and you probably have heard people say that the problem is a failure in Abraham's faith. He didn't pray long enough. If he had prayed, uh, if there's one righteous person there, will you spare it? And God would have spared Sodom because Lot is described in the New Testament as a righteous man. But that wasn't a failure of faith. You see what was happening? This, the, the issue here was not the fate of Sodom, but the character of God. See, Abraham's concern is, are you really just? Can we trust you? Is the universe on solid footing? See? And, and so he began to pray. And in the course of that praying, he saw another side of God. At each step of the way, God loomed larger in his eyes. His faith grew until he came to the point that he realized God is just. It's reasonable for him to destroy this, this city. And that's why he broke off praying. He, you see, he, he, God had aligned him with his way of thinking as a result of, of prayer. Now, I know I've thrown a lot of ideas at you this morning, and some of them may be new to you, but I would encourage you to think through these issues. And you know, Don't think of God as some kind of celestial slot machine into which you pop a prayer and out comes a result. You know, prayer is not magic. We, we sometimes ask the question, does prayer work? As though we're talking about 
some sort of automatic immediate response. So, you know, does the television work? You turn it on and it, it has a picture. Yes, prayer works, but it does not work in the way in which we think. It is not the means by which we get what we want. It is the means by which we express our utter, absolute, total dependence upon God. And it's the means by which we connect with Him and we come to know Him and to align ourselves with Him. Now I want to go back and read our, our purpose statement again. Prayer is the highest expression of our dependence on and relationship to God. It is many things. It is worship and devotion, intercession for others, making requests for ourselves. It is the means by which we discern truth in the scriptures and relate truth to life. It is the way we determine God's will. Prayer is our primary ministry. And that's why we put this first in our list of objectives. Prayer is our primary ministry. By it, everything else is done. It's our goal to be a praying people, to pray without ceasing, and to live our lives and carry out our ministries through prayer. And I would just echo our Lord's request, uh, the, uh, the disciples' request to our Lord. Lord, teach us to pray. Teach us to be a praying people. Let's Let's pray. Father, thank you for these um, <clears throat> examples of women and men throughout Scripture who uh, who knew how to pray, uh, who did not pray selfishly to consume uh, the answers uh, on their own upon their own passions, uh, who, who saw that prayer was the means by which they could make contact with you and maintain that contact and and walk with you through the day, as Enoch did, as Noah did, others who made their way through life, aware of your presence, communicating, communing, fellowshipping, worshiping, expressing devotion, asking, expressing dependence, um, persistent, patient, prevailing in prayer. Lord, teach us to be men and women who pray. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.